Seek health, find God, and ministries will find you. Hello, this is Josiah Meyer for the Seeking Health Podcast. And I just recorded a podcast on narcissism, introducing the concept, uh, talking about some of the background, uh, who's approaching this topic and different perspectives on it, and then speaking about overt narcissism or the grandiose narcissist. You'll have different terms for this. Um, Now I'd like to talk about covert narcissism, sometimes called vulnerable narcissism. And this one is um, a really interesting, somebody that's been, that's had influence with uh, covert narcissism would probably not call it interesting. They might call it insidious or something like that. Um, it's, it's a strange one because you would think, when you think of narcissism, you think of the Donald Trump, you think of uh, David Ramsey, you think of somebody that's out there in your face, um, that's putting themselves first, and that is probably somewhat successful and um, is making a lot of money, but their personal life is kind of falling apart. Now, what's strange is that you can have somebody who has all the same internal workings of a narcissist, where they have that deep sense of insecurity. Uh, they don't feel loved as a person. Um, they feel worthless inside. Uh, they view others as objects. They are always trying to to feed that beast inside. They they want to prop themselves up. They want to give themselves that affirmation, and they're prepared to use others as their pawns. But they don't have the same kind of power. They don't have the same kind of personality. They don't have that same ability to get out there and make the money or intimidate people with their physical, you know, with their body or with their booming voice or with their charisma. These are people that are physically weaker, that um, maybe they're maybe they're not as intelligent, although that might not be the case. Um, but in, in, in various ways, they just don't have that ability to dominate and so they go underground and these people become covert or uh, vulnerable narcissists. And these people are very, very, very difficult to point out and there's less written about them. But what is written about them is people that finally find freedom from these people and say, wow, like, wow, that person took me out for a long time and I always thought the problem was me until I turned around and realized oh it's you you're the problem it's a little bit like um uh in the in the play Julius Caesar Julius Caesar turns around as he's being stabbed by the senate and his friend Brutus is among the conspirators and he says not you too Brutus there's kind of that moment that some people have of turning around and realizing all this time I thought you were my friend, but actually you were the cause of my downfall. So what is a vulnerable narcissist? How can we identify them and how can we get away from these people? These, again, it's like, it's complicated. It's hard to put your finger on it, but um, once you know what these people are, you realize one of the most important things in your life is identifying people like this and staying really far away from them. In fact, um, 
I would argue that this lesson is so important that it has been embedded within really ancient stories uh, and also modern stories, fairy tales and things like that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what a covert narcissism is using fairy tales and using mythology. And uh, if you go back and listen to some of my podcasts on Jordan Peterson, you'll realize that um, stories um, like the, the myths and fairy tales and these great stories we have in our cultures, they, t- they teach us lessons about, how, about patterns of behavior that can become really, really important for us as we try and live a successful life. And the most important patterns become archetypes. There's people that act in a certain typical way. And then there's people that is like an archetype. A arch means like king or the, the highest or like, um, like the last piece in the arch. It's the most important. So there's archetypes of behavior. And there's some people that um, there's certain personality traits that play themselves out over and over and over and over. And there's two that I want to talk about. One is the wicked witch slash the evil stepmother. This is an archetype that plays itself out in mythology, that plays itself out in fairy tales, that plays itself out, um, well, in those two, mythology and fairy tales. Um, And she is a covert narcissist. Um, That's what it looks like. And there are stories told about her to remind us that's what it is, that's what she does, and this is what you do to get away from a person like that. And then the other archetype is um, the trickster or the Loki. It's not. It's harder to find find a good name for it, um, <clears throat> but it's like a dark father figure, or it's like a trickster, and we'll we'll get to that in a second. So the Wicked Witch is, um, it's, it's a more dominant archetype. It's something that, as I say that, probably have an image in your mind. And I think it's more common. Um, I know that narcissism, um, it's something like four to one overt narcissists are more likely to be men. Um, covert narcissism, I haven't heard statistics on, but I'm guessing that it is more likely to be women. And likely that's just because of the power imbalance. They don't have that same ability to dominate for the most part. Some people do. And I think I've worked under narcissistic female bosses. That's not a slam on all. I've worked under some wonderful women as well. But one in particular was really difficult to work with. And in hindsight, I'm thinking, yeah, she was kind of narcissistic. Um, So you can have that overt narcissistic person that's a woman. But the archetype that I want to talk about is... um, a covert uh, or vulnerable narcissist who is a woman and she presents in a little bit of this sneaky witch-like way. So if you think, for example, of the the queen from Snow White, she looks at the mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror says that Snow White is more beautiful than her. Now for a normal person having somebody else more beautiful than you, it doesn't matter. And even, you know, beauty is subjective and whatever. But for a narcissist, she needs to be number one. And so 
anyone else in her circle that seems more beautiful, that's younger, that's more attractive, or has more going for her than she does, that becomes an enemy that she wants to take out. And she can become envious of her own children, whether they're boys or girls, be envious of their looks, be envious of their health, be envious of their strength. And she wishes to destroy that. She wishes to make that sick and to make it vulnerable and make it dependent on her. So what does, uh, what does she do? She feed, she gives Snow White an apple. She transforms herself into a different form where she seems weak and vulnerable and helpless as, um, as this hag. And then she gives Snow White this gift of this poisonous apple and the apple doesn't kill her it makes her fall asleep so there's a lot of symbolism there one is that this sort of person seems to be your friend seems to be giving you stuff seems to be giving you compliments seems to be in your court but like a judas character they're really there to try and take you out um, they're really there to not be on your side to somehow use your strength to benefit them um they can be overprotective of their children or overprotective of their spouse or overprotective of their employees, um, crossing boundaries, getting involved in people's lives, um, messing up important parts of their lives because they want to have all the attention for themselves. They want to have all the energy coming towards themselves. They don't want people to get strong and move away from them. They don't want people to come up through the company and then move on and get another job somewhere else. They want everybody to be giving them strength and giving them energy. And so these are people that um, when people around them start growing up, start getting stronger, start learning things, that's when they transform themselves from being the beautiful queen to an evil hag that wants to give poisonous apples, uh, metaphorically speaking. That's, that's when they start um, trying to make people sick and weak around them. That is the pattern of a covert narcissist that um, they might have a mode where they seem extremely attractive, but they also have a very dark side. So that is Snow White. No, that is Sleeping Beauty. Um, Snow White. <clears throat> uh, if we'll just kind of go through these these um, fairy tales, they all kind of tell the same story, but in a slightly different way, and they all have different insights. Um, Snow White is a story just about um, one person was not invited to a party. Um, there was a party that didn't have anything to do with her, just a baby born. Uh, husband and wife were really excited. They've been waiting for a long time. Finally, they have a child. They're excited about this. They forget to invite one person. She takes it very personally, puts a curse on the child. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, that curse ends up um, she uh, falls asleep and she has to be awoken by her prince. Um, I talked about that story in a previous podcast about um, archetypes, so I'm not going to get deep into that except just to say 
you might have a covert narcissist on your in your circle if um if you forget to invite them they become extremely spiteful if uh and as well if there's a special occasion that isn't about them um they can go psycho a little bit um you know they might not even be a really close friend but if you don't invite them it's the crazy comes out uh there's people like this uh and there's people that um that will show up on your best day the best day of your life and critique you or be glum or somehow make it about them or somehow rain on your parade um people like this are typically covert narcissists and they can become extremely petty and vindictive and um hold a grudge and years later when you or somebody you love is weak they can find a way to poison that relationship or poison that person to make them um less than they could be so another example I'll just skim over is um the the character of Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Uh and this is also what I've talked about in previous podcasts. I really find these stories to be very rich in symbolism and they tell us a lot about kind of these patterns of behavior, these archetypes of of life. And she's someone who um presents herself as a friend to the young Ariel, the young and innocent girl. She's known to the strong and good leader, but he can't he doesn't realize exactly how much danger she poses and also he can't get rid of her. He doesn't really like her, but he tolerates her. Um but she presents herself as a close and intimate friend, somebody that could really lend listening ear, somebody who is a safe voice to Ariel. Um and uh she gives Ursula gives Ariel a gift of, you know, having legs and being able to pursue her dreams and and everything. But she takes away her voice. It's very significant. She takes away her voice. And this is what a covert narcissist does. She has a strange relationship to young innocent people, people that are um finding their wings, people that say I have a dream, I want to pursue fame or I want to I want to become who I am and they say, "Yes, I I have a way to get you where you don't want to be. Um I have a way to give you legs. The only exchange is I'm going to steal your voice. Um there's going to be a way where you can't speak because the covert narcissist says, "I want to speak. I want to be all about me." Um the covert narcissist has a problem with other people expressing themselves and becoming who they are. They want everybody to be silent, independent and childlike. In fact, that's what she does. That's the that's her superpower. Is she turns the king and anybody else that would come into her circle into a helpless little worm in her little worm farm. Um and this is also what a covert narcissistic woman will ch- try to do. Um this isn't sexist by the way. Men can do this just as much. Uh I'm just talking about this is the way that the archetype plays out 
in these stories, and this is how it is most commonly happens. But a woman or a man can absolutely do all these things. And as we switch over to the male side of the archetype, as we talk about male myths, it'll be exactly the same thing, that this is how covert narcissism tends to look in a man, but a woman can can do exactly that. A woman can be Judas, a woman can be Loki, a woman can be these other things. But she tries to make the men in her, in her life into little worms who are weak, who are disgusting, who are uh, have no self-esteem, who cannot accomplish anything, and she's able to tower over them in a very domineering way. This is the story of... This is Ursula from The Little Mermaid. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is a story that you all watched and, and either enjoyed or were terrified of as kids. Um, and the only way that... And the last thing about Ursula is she's able to summon the storm. This is something that all of these characters so far have been able to do in one form or another. Uh, Maleficent was able to turn into a dragon. Uh, when she was challenged, the covert narcissist might seem like, you know, a weak, helpless person, like that hag that uh, Maleficent turned into during Snow White. Oh, I'm so weak. I'm so useless. I, I'm so poor. I, you know, I can barely hold myself together. Here's a, here's an apple I'm giving you. They might seem weak and helpless, but they can summon the storm, and Ursula is able to summon a huge storm to try and um, destroy the relationship of um, Ariel with the prince, whoever the prince is. Um, Maleficent is able to turn into a dragon. There, There is this chaotic energy that they have where if you really are starting to get away from them and starting to establish your own pattern, establish your own strength, establish your own beauty, um, grow up as a person, um, there is this raging fountain of negative energy or of evil that they're able to draw on where they can all of a sudden just start yelling or they can, they can summon allies or they can, they can summon the storm. And, um, the way that the storm, the way that they are defeated is through, in these stories, and you might call this patriarchal or whatever, but um, the, the the prince runs his ship into uh, Ursula and kills her. In the story of Sleeping Beauty, it is the strength of the prince. The prince slays the dragon. So, you know, that isn't necessarily saying that you need a man to save you, but in archetypal language, in the language of, of stories and, and fantasies, what, what I think that means is either um, a man drawing on stereotypically male characteristics of strength and uh, courage, or else a woman drawing on these attributes within herself to stand up on her own two legs and say, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to seek another career. I don't need you. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much for what you've given me, but I'm moving on from this company. Or a daughter saying, look, mom, I'm moving on. Uh, this is not, um, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm 33 or whatever. Uh, I don't need you. I'm, uh, I'm not afraid of you. 
Um, I can still have a relationship with you as long as you don't bring the crazy. But if you're going to keep bringing the crazy, then we're not going to have a relationship. Moving on, just drawing on that strength to just say no. And um, it's far more complicated than marriage, but at a certain point, you know, you need to bring in necessary. There's a book by Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings that is really helpful. And he said, um, necessary endings are a very powerful part. He's the same guy that wrote Boundaries. Um, there's a time to bring a necessary ending to a relationship or to um, a practice. And you can say, this practice is going to end. You're not going to be an alcoholic for the rest of your life. Or I'm not going to be married to an alcoholic for the rest of my life. And the husband might say, well, hold on a second, I'm an alcoholic. Well, are you going to change that or am I going to get a divorce? When you bring a necessary ending and say, look, I'm giving you two more months. I'm not going to be married to an alcoholic for the rest of my life. That brings a necessary ending to a codependent relationship and says, this behavior is not going to continue as far as I'm concerned. And I think there is a way and a time and a place within a marriage to say, this kind of behavior, this gaslighting, this keeping me down, this belittling me, this, all of these things, I'm not, I'm not going to put up with this for the rest of my life. This needs to end. And, you know, either the behaviors end or I start to see significant improvements or I'm out of here. And I think that there is a time and a place, um, there is a time when emotional abuse becomes so severe that it is legitimate to demand a change or else to seek a divorce. Um, that's an unpopular opinion, but I have a podcast coming out on that soon, or perhaps it's come out already. Um, but you can't just treat people like garbage and expect them to stay with you. You need to love and cherish and commit to... Um, a two-way relationship. Uh, you can't expect to only take and not give in a relationship and expect people to continue to serve you emotionally and sexually and, and financially in all those ways. So moving on to the next example, um, and I think this will be my final example of a covert narcissistic woman, is uh, the mother entangled. And um, you'll notice a repeat of a lot of the themes this is a woman who is ugly, who is old, um, who is ugly inside. Uh, she doesn't, she's not a kind person, she's not a good person, but she's found a way to make herself look and appear beautiful and young and good. And that's through um, stealing the life from her child. And uh, this child is not her own child, she adopted it. Um, but she has a way of stealing the life force of, of this child to make herself seem young. Um, she locks this child in a tower. She won't let it get out. She won't let the child experience life. She won't let the child um, find her own wings. Um, she won't let the child explore. She won't let the child make friends. Um, she won't. She's an enemy of of the, the love life of the child, uh, the child finding somebody else because that she would see that as a threat to her relationship with the child. And the songs in that, in that movie are very, very significant, um, clearly influenced by psychology and by some of these insights. 
Um, like there's the song Mother Knows Best. And the, the mother character goes on and on about how she knows best and how she's poo-pooing her adopted daughter and saying she doesn't know anything and she just needs to trust me and mother knows best and listen to your mumsy and all these things. Again, trying to turn her into uh, a weak, dependent, small, little child that cannot grow up, that cannot challenge her, that cannot move on, that cannot have an adult sort of a relationship with her. Because she doesn't want an adult relationship. She wants a child-dependent relationship. And when uh, Rapunzel finally gets to the point of saying, look, I just need to leave. Um, I'm not going to stay here anymore. Uh, She sneaks out and she has adventures and then her mother brings her back and then she says, no, I'm just leaving. That's when the dark side comes out. That's when she summons the storm. That's when she ties her up. That's when she gets plays dirty. And you realize that actually she had no love for her daughter at all. Um, she was only using her. And this is the, the shock that people have with narcissists that you might think that somebody that is so committed to this relationship has a massive amount of love, has a massive amount of, like, okay, they might be a difficult person, but it's because they love me so much. And the truth of the matter is, the difficult truth, uh, the hard truth, is that actually this person doesn't love you. They love themselves. They love what they are getting out of the relationship. And if you try and grow up, if you try and get beyond them, if you try and get your own strength, if you're dealing with, you know, uh, a severe case of a codependent narcissistic boss or spouse or parent, at a certain point you'll realize they don't actually love you. They only love, they were only in it for what they could get out of the relationship. And that can be a real shock that that realization might come in a number of ways. Um, but however it comes, it can be a real shock to the person to realize, oh, you only cared for how I could serve you. You were never in this. You know, love is a two-way street, and love is this amazing thing where you look into the eyes of another person, and it's as though you see yourself. You know, the way that you, you think about yourself. You know, I want to be fed. I want to be clothed. I want people to love me. I want people to care for me. I want good things to happen to me. This is how we feel about ourselves, naturally. Um... I'm I'm worthy of good things happening to me. I'm worthy of of a good life. This is how we this is how a healthy person thinks about themselves. Love is where you look into the eyes of another person and all those feelings naturally attach to the other person. And there's something kind of miraculous about it. Um and true love is when you look at the other person and you th- and you think all these things. Like one stage of love is we're together, you know, you and I, we're basically the same person. So if good things happen to you, good things will happen to me. But another stage of love is where we're not together. And, you know, you might be a child that's moving on, going to college, and you're, you know, your back is to me, you're, you're heading off into the world. And you'd like, you might call me once a month, and you might even forget that. And you might get a girlfriend and get married, and your life is going to get exciting and busy, and you're just, you're moving on. 
but all those feelings still apply. I wish good things to happen to you. I wish good, you know, you're worthy of all good things happening. And it's amazing when you have a boss that's like that, that says, you know, you've been wonderful for our company for the last 10 years, and I see that you have potential, and other companies also see this, and you're worthy of all good things happening to you. That's a treasure when you find that. I mean, that's maybe asking a lot in the workplace, but sometimes you find that. And in a spouse, hopefully you're you're not thinking of the end, but you can still have that sense of you're worthy of good things happening to you, even if that doesn't, even if I don't benefit in any way from that. You're worthy. You're a good person. I love you. A narcissist, whether overt or covert, does not feel that. And that's what we talked about in the previous podcast, that um, that it is something magical that happens, and it seems to happen young in childhood, where people have this ability to empathize with others. There's something that happens in the brain, something that happens in the personality. We're not exactly how or what, but we know that sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes people don't see other people as worthy, good centers of consciousness as, as people. They see other individuals as objects to serve them. And this can create these relationships where people only relate to others as objects to serve them. And then at a certain point, you think you have a relationship with this person, you think that they're a good person, you think that they have your best interests at heart, or at least kind of a mutual exchange. But at a certain point, you realize, actually, they were only ever in it for themselves. And this can be a devastating moment when you realize, my whole life was a lie. Or my whole relationship with this person was a lie. All this time, like Rapunzel waking up to realizing that her mother wasn't really her mother and didn't really love her, all this time, this was a lie. All this time, you were the one holding me back. All this time, you were the one keeping me in this prison. When I had the strength, I always thought the problem was me. No, I had the strength. You were the problem. You were the one holding me back. All right, so that's kind of a heavy topic, but um, as we seek to pursue health, um, these are really central issues to talk through with your counselor or to work through, um, to recognize that some people that have been at the center of your life are not actually on your side. They're not actually good people. They're not actually people that care or love, care for or love you. They're people that are using you doesn't mean that you need to instantly jump to cutting off all relationships with them. But it does mean that you can wake up to say, okay, I've been sick for a long time. Where's the poison coming from? Oh, maybe it's coming from the covert narcissist in my life. Maybe I need to get that voice out of my head and maybe that would change things. Maybe that would change things if that voice wasn't playing in my head either the voice from my childhood or from that job that was very significant for a long time, or perhaps even from my spouse, or from a child even, um, or from a family member. Where what, Where is that voice that just keeps ringing in my head? Um, when we can get those voices out, all of a sudden we can find new levels of health oh, opening up like flowers before us. 
All right, so let's talk now. We've talked in the stereotypically feminine side of covert narcissism. Let's now look at um, at some of these archetypal stories, fairy tales, and mythology to look at the male version of covert narcissism. So um, I want to tell you three myths about um, male covert narcissists. Uh, and they're all very ancient stories, which tells me that this is again you can go back and listen to podcasts about uh or from jordan peterson uh talking about myths and how um these stories really become embedded in society and tell us deep truths about humanity um it's a little bit like the book of proverbs only in color in you know in story form uh and we will definitely get to biblical wisdom soon maybe in the next podcast so uh one of the oldest stories uh is the story of um the egyptian stories of uh what's his name seth is the bad guy and uh starts with an h um and horus uh is the is the good guy so um in the ancient story there's a king who is uh, good and who rules the land in fairness and goodness. And he has two sons, Seth and Horus. Seth is bad, Horus is good. And Seth is um, this sneaky, bad sort of um, character. And one day when the king is not looking, or rather I should say he's getting old and he's blind, um, Jordan Peterson makes a big point of that, that... um, He's not noticing. The king is willfully blind. He's not paying attention to Loki or to um, to Seth. He should be paying attention to this person, but he he's not. And in a moment of weakness, he gets cut up. Um, I believe the story goes that his eye gets plucked out. And then because he can't be killed, he's a god. He gets thrown into, um, into hell, into the underworld. And then Horus... Um, forget some of the details of the story, but he rescues his father. I believe he puts his body back together, um, but I might be getting two stories confused. And he fights Horus, and in that fight, um, or he fights Seth, in that fight, he loses an eye. Horus, the good guy, loses an eye, um, showing that he gets wounded, um, wounded in his sight um but he also uh in that fight uh finds the eye of his father and then after he suppresses seth then he goes down to the underworld rescues his father and the two of them rule together so you think oh that's weird kind of cheerful kind of sounds like an an ancient myth lots of gods going up and down and fighting each other Um, If you come from a Christian background, you might be tempted to just say that's demons and evil. Um, But I think these are principles that that ancient societies want to preserve about how humanity works. Sometimes there's a king who is good, but he's getting blind to problems that are right in front of him. Problems like maybe his own son or somebody in his court that would like to take him out. 
And when they do, uh, chaos reigns. Uh, because a bad person is in charge, you don't want a bad person in charge. And the only way to deal with that is for a person of good um, to to fight back and then to put right things back in order. Another story that's pretty similar comes from the Nordic tradition about um, about Loki, and he's the only one I remember his name. Um, or well, Thor. You know, has a a privileged son, a favorite son, and um, he has a lot of sons, but he has one that he's especially proud of, and 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 uh, there's a prophecy that his son will die, and so he goes through the empire and he forces everything, or he, he yeah, he tells everything to promise not to hurt him. All the stones promise not to hurt him. All the trees promise not to hurt him. Everything promises not to hurt him, of course, because everything's alive and magical. They all have a will, and they all love him. He's a beautiful son. He's a good son. Uh, everybody's excited about him being the next king, and um, and so everything promises not to hurt him. And so then he has this strange power where if you throw a rock at him, it will veer off instead of hitting him. Everything promises except for mistletoe, and mistletoe is... You know, it's a plant that grows off of a tree. People think, oh, well, that's too weak. We don't need to bother making that promise. But Loki is sitting around, and um, he is kind of a neglected son. He doesn't get as much attention. He feels envious. He wants to take this son out. And so he convinces an old woman to, um, to get some mistletoe, and somehow they turn it into an arrow. And um, so they're having this party where everybody's throwing stuff at this sun, rocks and arrows and javelins. And because of these promises, they're all veering off and it's all grand fun for everybody to show how immortal and how, how strong he is. Um, but this old woman takes this bow of mistletoe and everybody's just laughing. And then she pulls it back and shoots him and kills him. And I kind of forget the rest of the story. But the reason I bring that story up is here's another story of um, envy. Now, there's a difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy, and this, is, this was really important when a counselor told me this about this time last year. Um, people can be jealous of you where they wish they could have what you have. And jealousy is not necessarily a bad thing. You could have two runners. One runner says, you know, last night I ran it, you know, a 20 mile run and I did it in this time and the other one says wow that's that's crazy I didn't do that you know my time was only only this much and I only did a 15 mile run and there's that jealousy there's that competition there's that rivalry and if it's mixed with love if it's if it's in a a good relationship that can totally be a healthy dynamic but envy because you want what the other person has and you're motivated to get it and you don't hate the person you just want what they have you want to like they show you a picture of what your life could be and it motivates you to say you know what I want my life to be like that envy is when you look at what somebody else has and you say I want to destroy them I want to take them down because I don't have that I don't feel motivated to change and it bothers me that they have that and I can't have that 
or perhaps I can't change, but it bothers me. And again, there's this lack of empathy. There's this lack of seeing the other person as, as a good person, as a center of consciousness, as a person who is valuable and good in and of themselves. And this is what Loki felt for his brother, is he's getting attention, he's getting adoration, he's getting, you know, all these things that I don't have. I have no motivation to become a better person. All I want to do is destroy him and take him out because then I will feel better. I'll feel, um, I'll feel better in some way. And so right away you can see a link for Christian listeners over to the Christian story of Cain and Abel. Um, Abel is doing well. He's being rewarded. Cain is not doing well. He's not being rewarded. And rather than becoming jealous and being motivated to change, which God encourages his, him to do, he said, God notices that Cain is not happy because Cain and Abel both made sacrifices to God, but Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, Abel's was. And rather than changing what he does so that he can make a better sacrifice in some way, and it's not quite clear why the sacrifice was not accepted, but God says, look, that one didn't work. Try again. Do better. Um, push yourself, you know, and improve. Learn from your mistake and change your behavior. Um, and likely that was clear to him what he should have done. He could have imitated Abel. He could have tried something different. And then he would have been accepted. And God said, look, it's not hard. Just change your behavior, and then you'll be accepted. But instead, Cain feels this envy towards his brother Abel, invites him out to the field, and kills him. This is the attitude of a covert narcissist, is um, you have something I want. Um, this makes me feel jealous and angry and bad inside. And uh, there's no motivation to change or to become a better person. Rather, it's I'm going to take you out. I'm going to I'm going to destroy you. Another example of a covert narcissist is uh, Lion King. And we have Mufasa, who is the good king, but like in the story of Seth and Horus, he is somewhat blind. He's not paying attention to uh, the darkness in his kingdom, for one thing. But also, he's not paying attention to his brother, and his brother hates him and wants to usurp him and wants to, um, he wants to take him out. You'll notice that um, Mufasa has a great celebration. He has this day when he dedicates his son and uh, affirms him in front of the empire. Uh, Scar doesn't come to that party. He's not interested in being part of happiness on behalf of uh, the young Simba. Pay attention to people that don't want to be there when you're happy. Pay very careful attention to people that aren't happy when good things happen to you. Pay attention to these people. Don't be blind to them. Pay attention to these people because they might not really be your friends. Um, pay attention to these people. So we get a bit of, um, of, of, uh, of, an, of insight into him when we see that he doesn't come to the party 
also he cozies up to the young Simba. He pretends he's a good friend, but the things that he encourages him to do are actually toxic for him. What the young Simba needs to do is, um, you know, trust his father and um, learn how to rule a kingdom. Instead, he encourages him to go to a place of danger where hopefully he will be killed. Turns out he doesn't get killed, um, but he sets in motion a chain of events that um, that Scar is able to use to then kill his father and expel young Simba. And the way that Scar expels Simba is by using shame. Um, I hope that you know, guys know the story of Lion King, otherwise this will be way too quick. But I'm anticipating that most of you know the story. Um, Scar kills Mufasa, but he does so in a way that seems like an accident. And it seems like it was um, Simba's fault. And then he says, you can never come back because you're a murderer. And um, so he finds a way through... Um, like Scar could never take... He mentions early on that he could never take on Mufasa in a fight. He's not weak, or he's weak, he's not strong. This is what covert narcissists are. They have all the... If they were strong, they would become an overt narcissist. They would take over the world, as Scar eventually does. But because they're weak, they find sneaky and mean ways of overturning people. They find ways to turn their malevolence and cunning to their advantage. And the way that he expels Simba is not through strength. He doesn't say, if you come back here, I'll beat you up. He says, you're a murderer. You can never come back. People will never forgive you. And so through this shame and this deep sense of self-loathing, he's able to send Simba away. And then he also sends, you know, the hyenas after him to try and kill him. But he's got this, what is far deeper and more powerful than might is this sense of shame that he cloaks him with. And it's not until Simba is able to overcome this sense of shame through um, through various things, through a vision from his father and remembering his destiny and having a woman laugh at him for um, not growing up and not entering into his into his destiny. Finally, he decides to come back and he fights against Scar and he reasserts his dominance in his own life, in his own rightful um, rightful place. The thing, again, that we see is you can have somebody that seems like he's part of the family, that he's, you know, well, Uncle Scar, he's... Not the happiest guy, but he's around. He likes to play with me. He does this, he does that. He's a bad person. He's a really bad person inside. And if he has the opportunity, um, because he's just festering away, um, and he's just waiting, he's biding his time, and he's waiting for a moment of weakness. And in a moment of weakness, he will strike. And he will strike in the most devastating way. If you realize you have a person like that in your life, you need to pay attention to them and you need to keep away from them. You need to keep them away from your kids. You need to keep them away from yourself. Um, you need to recognize that there are some bad people in this world and they might not present as a really, really bad person. Um, 
but as you learn more about narcissism and covert narcissism and some of these dynamics, you might have to realize, you know what, there's somebody in my life that is not a good person and uh, we're going to have to put up some safeguards around these relationships. Again, we can jump over to the Bible and talk about Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He was um, he followed Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. There was also 72 disciples uh, that followed Jesus. There was a larger crowd, but then there were 12 that were specially chosen. And um, we don't hear much from Judas, except uh, towards the end, um, Jesus has this moment of triumph where he goes marching into Jerusalem and, and people wave palm branches and people make a big deal about him. And it's that night that a woman comes and washes his feet with her hair and um, and pours, I think it was something like a year's wage worth of perfume on his feet. So kind of this extremely high honor. Um, and Judas is the one that says, why was this money wasted? Why wouldn't we use this money and spend it on the poor? And when we understand more about covert narcissism, what we understand is Judas, he said that, but really he said that because he didn't like people making such a big deal about Jesus. It would have been okay if they were making a big deal about him. And then the commentator, I believe it's Matthew, mentions Judas said this because he had charge of the money belt. Um, so he wasn't really interested in the poor. He was just saying, why couldn't this money have been given, quote unquote, to God? And then he could be in charge of it and some of it might slip into his pocket. And um, he didn't like much being made of Jesus. He probably was still a little bit resentful for the whole parade and and the triumphal entry. And now this woman's anointing him and people are just paying far too much attention to Jesus. And this is making him sulky and it's making him grumpy. And he makes this passive aggressive remark. Hey, why? Why? Come on. Like, grow up, lady. Uh, this was a waste. You should have spent this. Can you imagine how many people you could have fed? But really what he's thinking is, I would have really liked to have that money for myself. And I would really like to have that attention for myself. And what do you know? Not much, not long after that, he sneaks out and betrays Jesus for 40 pieces of silver. The thing um, that I just want to point out about that, there's a verse where um, Jesus has adoring crowds all over the place because he's been healing and teaching, and um, and yet it's mentioned, but Jesus went away to a secluded place. He did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in the heart of every man. And um, what do you know? Those crowds ended up turning on him. Those crowds abandoned him. Those crowds eventually crucified him. Jesus knew not to trust everybody that said that he, they were his friend. And although Jesus had uh, Judas in his 12, he knew, he said at one point, but one of you is a devil. He knew that one of his disciples was not good. Um, and he pointed him out at the Last Supper. And he said, the person who dips the bread with me is the one who will betray me. And he never let Judas into his inner, inner circle. There was uh, Peter, James, and John were the three 
who were allowed up on the mountain of transfiguration. These were the three that that were really close and that were allowed to have the the closest access to him when he was sleeping, when he was tired, when he was not at his best, when he really wanted to share something really personal. He shared it with these three. He didn't share it with Judas. Um, communion, you know, Judas left. Jesus said, what you're about to do, do quickly. Get out of here. And then he had communion. And then he shared communion with the rest of the 11. Jesus didn't entrust himself to some people because he knew, you know, you're part of the disciples. You're here voluntarily or I invited you. Uh, you can stay. You have a role to play. But we're going to put up a little bit of distance between myself and you until, you know, for Jesus, he knew it was the purpose was that he would be betrayed by Judas. But even before that, we see hints that Jesus was kind of putting up walls and kind of saying, I can see, I see what's going on. Jesus wasn't like um, the blind king. Jesus could see what was going on. And he said, I have friends and I have people that aren't my friends. Uh, I have people that are in my inner circle. And I have people that are not in my inner circle. He could see the character of Peter, that behind all the bluster and all the energy and the mistakes and and getting up in his face at times and saying stupid things, Peter did. Um, sometimes, you know, at, at one point Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the interests of God at heart, but the interests of man. You're being a stare to me. Behind all that, he could see that Peter was somebody on whom he could build his church. And he could see that, yes, Peter would betray him. He would abandon him. Didn't betray him, but he abandoned him in his time of weakness, but in his time of need. But he's somebody that would weep and repent and come back and stay faithful. He knew character when he saw it. And he knew Judas's character when he saw it. Because make no mistake, um, we can be we can be blind. We can we can be blind to character. We can be blind to the true nature of people. But there are people that want to take you out. There are bad people, and if you entrust yourself to them, if you tell them your secrets, if you tell them your deep heart, if you tell them, you know your location and and what you do and and what you're hoping to do and your plans and your dreams and your give them full access. They will find ways to take you out. And it might be through a cataclysmic betrayal, such as Jesus. Or it might be poisonous apples. Might be things that seem to be gifts, but really, maybe maybe it's literal gifts, but there's strings attached. Or maybe it's little, quote-unquote, tidbits of insight. Maybe little suggestions that aren't actually good suggestions. They might seem sweet, but they're really ways to take you out. They're really ways to poison you. They're really ways to make you sick. Because some people don't want you to be strong. Some people want you to be weak. Pay attention to these people. So that being said, it seems pretty important to figure out who might be a covert narcissist in your life. And uh, perhaps put up some boundaries or perhaps pull back from them a little bit or um, reevaluate whether you even want to be friends with this person or not. 
And so here's a brief little list of how you might be able to find somebody who is perhaps a covert narcissist or perhaps, because again, I didn't mention this enough, but narcissism runs on a scale. I didn't mention this enough in this podcast. In the previous podcast, I mentioned it a few times. Um, narcissism exists along a, a continuum. So you can have a a really narcissistic person or you can have somebody that's just a little bit immature they tend towards narcissism or they tend towards covert narcissism but perhaps they're you know if we imagine a scale one out of ten perhaps they're only a four or a five out of ten you know you might be able to have a relationship with this person but you might just not really want them in your inner circle and you might find that if if you put them in your inner circle um, that's going to affect your life. That's going to affect the kind of decisions you make. That's going to affect how you see yourself. You're going to start hearing their voice in your head. If there's somebody like a 10 out of 10, a covert narcissist, they're envious of you. They um, they become your enemy even though they're, they're your friend. These are really dangerous people um, that you might you might really need to just get away from. And, I mean, you might say, well, that's that's pretty extreme. Like, that's pretty extreme to think of cutting off a relationship just because you see certain traits. Well, I mean, Abel would still be alive if he had have picked up on a few things, you know. There might have been some tells. There might have been some warning signs. Um, after Cain came back very angry from his sacrifice and wouldn't talk to Abel or who who knows how that played out you know there might be those warning signs where you realize you know what this relationship is not really moving in the right direction so and then if you can protect yourself perhaps you can protect yourself from a devastating blow um, people can't hurt you as much if uh, if you don't let them in on your personal life or if you don't go walking alone in the field with them so what are some kind of tip-offs that somebody might be a covert narcissist? This is the one who laughs when you fall. Now, again, there's a difference between jealousy and envy. So you can have a good rivalry between friends. And you can have a slip-up that is not costly to you, but it's funny. Right? You are having a good day and you slip but don't hurt yourself and your legs go up and it's comical and your best friend laughs and laughs and doubles over laughing that's not a problem but when you have like it's your graduation and it's a good day and you're excited you're proud and the only thing that one friend says is you know when you gave that speech your fly was down or, you know, your tassel should be on the other side of your hat. You know, you just totally messed that up. Or, um, you know, it, your robe is all bunched up funny, you know. Something like that. You know, they, they take what should be an amazing day and they find a way to laugh at you, just to sneer at you, to kind of, mm, yeah, well, I mean, it could have been better. Not impressed. That's a tip-off. That's a tip-off that there might be something going on here. This person might not really have absolutely your best interests 
at heart. Somebody that's sad when you're victorious. You know, you should have a good friend that when something really good happens, they're excited for you. And they want to throw you a party. Uh, hey, like that's awesome that, that you graduated. That's awesome that you got married. That's awesome that you, you know, found somebody. That's awesome that you had a new kid. That's awesome that you got a promotion. Let me throw you a party. Let me, you know, be the first one to congratulate you. Let, let me, you know, be excited for you. When you have somebody that you tell them good news and then they go silent or they go sullen or more often when you get to know these people well, you realize you just don't even want to tell them. Like you know how they're going to react and so you end up tiptoeing around them when something good happens to you until like they kind of find it out from somebody else because you don't really want to be the person to give them this good news because the news that you have triumphed on anything completely unrelated to them you know like you got a raise at work you know if you tell that to this person they're gonna be like oh lucky you like I haven't had a raise in 10 years like that's just wonderful for you like we weren't talking about you we were talking about me and how I got a raise um this is this is a tip off that there's something going on here that this person is not really healthy uh, this is a person who's always the victim. No matter how a situation plays out, they're always the victim. So you could... This reminds me of of a friend I had that relayed this story to me. That, you know, somebody said something insensitive. It, it was a hard time. Somebody had passed. I'm suffering. And this other person comes to me and says, oh, did so-and-so die? And just the way that it was said, it was just like cut and dry. It was like, oh, okay, he died, hmm, okay. And that hurt because this person was going through something, it was a traumatic time, and this person that should have cared, should have been emotionally engaged, should have been, man, like I'm rooting for you, I care for you, I love you, I see you as a valuable human being, and I see that you're going through pain, and I just want to say, like, that's that's terrible. Like, I heard this, and is it true? And I just wanted to say, like, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with you or something. Like, just, that sucks, man. Or, you know, whatever whatever the vernacular would be for, like, I, that's terrible. Instead, it was something very cold and just give me the information. And so this person said, after a few weeks, said, you know what? The way that you said that actually kind of came across kind of harsh. Um, and I'm, I'm not being, like, I, I'm not mad at you, but I just want to let you know that that kind of hurt how you said that. Uh, I just want to communicate how I felt. But, you know, I just wanted to tell you, like, there's no hard feelings, but just, this is, it kind of hurt the way that you said that. Uh, this was kind of the healthy person saying to the other person. And then the other person came back and said, oh, I'm sorry that you said that. And then, or I'm sorry that, that I said that. And then, then started a very long thing of like, well, but actually, is that because you were reading into my words? And, you know, you kind of always read into my words. And, you know, like, I'm not even sure that how much I really want to have a relationship with you if you're going to read this far into my words. And by the way, I love you and God bless. So that was you know, this interaction that started with person A going through a hard time, person B wasn't there for them, person B 
hurt them in a hard time. And person A, because they valued the relationship, said, actually, here's my boundary. Um, When I'm going through a hard time, please be nice to me. Don't just come barging in and demand information and leave. Like, you got to be a little bit nice to me. And person B says, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that, you know... And, and somehow person B makes it all about them. And all of a sudden, they're the victim. And all of a sudden, they're misunderstood. And all of a sudden, they're the one that's hurt. This is, this is covert narcissism. This is... Suddenly, it's all about them. It's like entangled the mother figure. Oh, now I'm the, now I'm the bad person. After she has been the bad person, she says, Oh, now I'm the bad person. So now she's the victim. This is... This is how narcissists work. They can be the bully, and then as soon as you say, ouch, you're hurting me, they turn around and say, oh, sure, I'm always hurting you. You're so unreasonable. Now I'm the bad person. So they, they always make themselves the victim. And it becomes profoundly confusing and unfair to the other person who's just trying to have a normal relationship, trying to have normal boundaries, trying to say, look, this, this is how my, like that hurt, I have these sorts of feelings, this is how I want to work the relationship. Um, the other person always comes back with, oh, I'm the victim now. Another telltale sign is you always feel drained after talking with them. They consume a tremendous amount of energy because, because they're saying they're the victim or because you know you're going to get a big reaction based on if you say this, all of a sudden they're going to get this reaction. If you say that, you're going to get that reaction. And so you end up trying to f- read them ahead of time to figure out how to how to talk to them to have a reasonable relationship and a reasonable uh, conversation and it ends up becoming rules upon rules like you have a relation you have a conversation and it blows up in your face and so you r- realize okay can't, I can't do that anymore I can't tell them something exciting that happened to me because that blew up in my face so then the next time you you say something bad that happened to you. Well, then that blows up because then, oh, like, you, that's nothing compared to this and that and the other. And then they're the victim. And you're like, oh, man, I have to sit and listen to them being a victim again. So then you think, well, okay, I won't do that. And it just becomes rules upon rules of, of you trying to do all the work to make the relationship work. And afterwards, you're just exhausted. And you think, man, like that person is a lot of work to be friends with. And the longer, it seems like the longer you're friends with a covert narcissist, the longer the list of of rules get because they're not normal people if you're dealing with somebody that's an extreme covert narcissist or vulnerable narcissist. They're not normal people. You need to have very abnormal rules to have something like a normal relationship with them. And you feel very drained about them and they're the last person that you would want to talk to about your victories in fact you you tend to instinctually kind of hide your victories and your joys and your bright spots from them because you don't really want to talk to them about these things because they tend to just poop on them or it it sends them into a spiral of victimhood or comparing or envying or something like that So I want to end this with two little cautions. Uh, The first one is just to remember again that these things exist on a spectrum. People have good days and bad days. People go through seasons. And people tend generally, 
a lot of people tend to improve over the course of their lifetime. So you can have a teenager that has a lot of these tendencies. A lot of teenagers end up going through a phase where they're moody and they're grumpy and they're self-centered and all these sorts of things. And they would fit the bill for a covert narcissist, but give him a break. He's 17 and life is hard when you're 17. And his brain hasn't fully developed yet. And hopefully by the time he's 34... He'll grow out of it, uh, hopefully before that. Uh, that's not to say that you don't call him on his, um, on his nonsense. If you're the parent or if you're, even if you're a friend, you can say, look, this is not reasonable. Like, we weren't talking about you. We were talking about me. Um, it, like, be happy for me, you know, and, and you can have those sorts of relationships. And those are exactly the sorts of relationships that help people grow up and help people be like, you know, no, you can't just talk about yourself all the time. I'm going to get up and leave. You're going to have to get a new roommate or you're going to have to buy your own pizza because if you're going to eat pizza with me, we're going to talk about like 50-50, half you, half me. Like um, Those sorts of conversations are great for pushing people to maturity. But the point of that was to say it's okay if somebody is 16, 17 and is immature. It's, it's also possible that you know somebody, an adult... It's just a little bit immature. And you just have to put up boundaries and you have to learn how to live around this person. And it's life. You know, nobody's perfectly mature. Nobody's, nobody's perfect. I mean, everybody has rough edges. But don't let that phrase, nobody's perfect, fool you into believing that there aren't some really bad people in this world. There are some really bad people in this world. There are some toxic people in this world. There are people that are covert narcissists or overt narcissists that really look at other people not in an empathetic way, but in a way of seeing other people like objects, starting with their closest circle. If you're the friend of a narcissist or a covert narcissist, they consider you to be a tool, like part of their world. You belong to them in a sense. And... That's not okay. That's not how relationships work. And you're going to have to need to put up boundaries. And sometimes you need to say, I need to get new friends. Because I'm never going anywhere in life. If I have these sorts of people on the inner circle of my life. They're going to take me out. They're going to poison me slowly. They're going to make little comments to kind of bump me down. And in a moment of weakness, they're not going to be there to lift me up. They're going to be there to push me down. So the other little caution or perhaps a question we might have at the end of this is, Josiah, aren't you just confusing depression with covert narcissism? Because as you're talking about this, that sounds like somebody, like it kind of sounds like Eeyore from the Winnie the Pooh series, or it sounds like somebody that's just down and they just kind of can't pull themselves out of the darkness. And so no wonder they keep talking on the dark side or, or keep comparing themselves or keep um, keep being negative. Uh, you know, don't you have to give people grace? Don't you have to, um, rather than cutting somebody out of their out of your life? I mean, if somebody's depressed, you got to keep being there for them. You got to keep being their friend. You got to keep coming around. I mean, this is that's perhaps the most important lesson in life: is don't give up on people just because the relationship is a lot of work. Now, um. I would answer this question very differently now than I would have a year or 10 or 5 years ago. 
um, because I've walked through dark times in my life and I've walked through depression um, and low points with other people and I just want to I don't have enough time to do this justice but I want to quickly say on talking about the depression there is situational depression in general like it's more complicated than this but in general there's situational depression there is clinical depression and then there's something else and we'll get to that in a second so situational depression I appreciated um, Jordan Peterson who is a clinical psychologist said people will come to him sometimes and say I'm depressed and he'll say tell me about your life and they'll say I just lost my job I, I lost my girlfriend you know my kid is sick and I lost all my friends and he'll say look you're not depressed your life sucks um, work on your life and then you're going to be more happy right so that's situ- situational depression you can go through a hard time and then your emotions are low because you're going through a hard time that is kind of normal like there's that's normal Okay, that's your body and mind are, are doing the right things in the sense that they're calibrated and your body is feeling down and feeling glum because your life is difficult. And that, like the answer to that is usually, and sometimes this isn't possible, but usually the answer is let's take a look at the things we can change in life so that our emotions can change. Because as we change things in our life, then the emotional compass is going to start swinging around to where ideally it should be. There's also another kind of depression called clinical depression, where you can be marching along and everything is going just fine. And all of a sudden, wham, there's just this darkness that pulls up and you're in this cloud for a day or three weeks, or three months, or three decades. And people that have experienced this say they don't really know why it comes. It seems random. It seems arbitrary. Everything is going well in life. And all of a sudden, the darkness shows up. And um, there's great like there's great medications that, that can be tried and can be used. There's been great advances um, in in medicine and psychology to help people with that. But clinical depression is a really debilitating condition. It is perhaps one of the worst things that you can have. Um, it, it, is, it ranks really high in some of the, the worst conditions that you can have. And it is a really, really hard thing to walk through, to have, you know, you're, you're soldiering along, you're doing the things you should do in your life, but something in your in the chemistry of your mind just goes um, to the darkness, and you have to walk through that. I guess as a point to B, there's also uh, bipolar disorder, which um, a good friend I have out in Quebec is bipolar, and he's talked with me. He's talked with our with our previous uh, university students, our campus ministry about it. He's got his medication figured out and he's um, actually become an artist. He calls it bipolar arts and you can buy his prints. And 
bipolar disorder, you go up, you go down. Um, you have really high highs, really low lows. And the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Um, and with medication, that can really get leveled out. But without medication, it's a really rough road. So that's kind of, that is depression. Either your life is hard and really the only answer to situational depression is how can we change the situation? It's the situation that's making you depressed. So how can we change that? Or if we really can't change it, is there a way through counseling that we can change our mindset, our outlook, or perhaps we can free up, we can clear up some things from your childhood or your past so you can see things in a different perspective. Um, Clinical depression and bipolar disorder, uh, the answer is really medication often uh, because there's just chemicals in the brain that are not firing like they should be. Then there's people that will hide behind the word depression but really what they need to do is just get up and face life courageously because every single one of us has a choice in the morning whether you're going to get yourself up and lift your own spirits up and face the day courageously or whether you're just going to droop down and lean on others to force them to try and drag you along and this is so I do the reason I did the others first is because I I need to be careful with this because um, sometimes Christians will only jump to the third category or not just Christians other people will as well will say look like you gotta just put on your your big boy pants or, or your big girl panties and just go out there and face the world and you need to if you're feeling a little glum then you need to just put on a smile and just go face it there are people that need to hear that message there's also people that are seriously depressed and that's a different message but there are people in this third category and I I can attest because I was here especially I, I my wife and I remember a specific time when we were dating when I was being all glum and I was a teenager and I was all moody and I was, oh, I feel so depressed. And she said, oh, like that's, that's troubling. Uh, I didn't know that you struggled with depression. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, well, maybe I'm not really depressed. Maybe I'm just looking for attention. Maybe I'm just trying to make you feel sorry for me. Maybe I'm just having a little pity party here. And like I didn't say all that, but it was this moment of realization, uh, and I'm skipping over it quick, it was significant in my life when my wife, my now wife, then girlfriend said, really? Are you really depressed? Sometimes people hide behind this word when they're not really clinically depressed. Nobody has diagnosed them with it. Um, They haven't tried seriously to improve their life. They haven't tried seriously to take responsibility for the times that they have messed up and made mistakes. They haven't tried seriously to, um, to make amends for some of the relationships that are now in disorder. They just play the pity card. They just play the victim card. And they expect everyone else to pick up after them. And if you don't watch it, you can get caught in the orbit of one of these people. And you can spend your whole life in their service. You can spend your whole life dedicating hour after hour after hour 
into cleaning up the mess of somebody who is perfectly capable of cleaning up their own mess. In fact, they would be a lot better off if you let them clean up their own mess. They would be often a lot better off if you let them crash and burn so that they can realize, actually, this hurts. I should, I should stand up straight with my shoulders back and take responsibility for my own life instead of trying to force other people to take responsibility for me. So it's a bit of a long roundabout way of answering the question. But I, I, the reason I put extra emphasis into that is because I do want to honor the fact that depression is real. There are people that have situational depression because their lives, they're in a difficult place. There are people who are clinically depressed or have bipolar disorder or other disorders as well. Um, have burnout, have you know other things going on, have PTSD. You know, those are things that I've walked through and have talked about on this podcast, burnout and PTSD. You know, those things can really affect your mood. But then there's people that are just making excuses. And they're just trying to manipulate you. And they're just trying to use you as a pawn in their little scheme. And so I guess I just want to close this podcast with a verse from 1 Corinthians. Do not be deceived... Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be conceived. <laughs> Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's just a fancy way of saying you are who you associate with. You will become your friends. And if you spend time with narcissists and covert narcissists, if you allow yourself to be sucked into their orbit, if you build your life around them, that's going to significantly affect how high you can fly in this life. That's going to significantly affect the quality of your life. So become wise to these people. Understand that they're out there and choose your friends wisely. This has been Josiah Meyer for Seeking Health Podcast. You can check out my blog at josiahmeyer.com. And if you like this podcast, subscribe. We're going to have a lot of interviews coming up soon. Um, and a lot more great topics talking about evangelicalism, the parts of it that are healthy, the parts of it that are perhaps not quite so healthy, talking about current issues in our time, and talking about how we can pursue a healthy relationship with God in the age in which we find ourselves. Please uh, also leave a comment and um, give me some stars on podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, have a good day. Bye.